Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, artists Melissa Cody and Roxana Piruzmand. They're both included in Made in LA 2023 Acts of Living, the sixth iteration of the Hammer Museum's biennial. The exhibition, which is on view through December 31st, was curated by Diana Nawi and Pablo Jose Ramirez with Ashton Cooper. This will be the first of two-man podcast episodes featuring artists from the exhibition. First up, Cody. She's a fourth-generation Navajo weaver. She creates tapestries from traditional techniques that engage both ancestral and contemporary ideas and forms. Her work is partly informed by the Germantown style, developed in the 19th century by weavers who used industrially dyed yarns produced in Germantown, PA, and shipped west to be used by Diné weavers. Cody's work has been included in exhibitions at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas, the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa, Site Santa Fe, the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, and more. A quick reminder, if you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download it. That'll help new folks find us. Melissa Cody, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Robert Frank and Todd Webb, Across America, 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history, but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th to January 7th, 2024. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. And we're back. Melissa Cody, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, how are you? How much were you born to weaving? And how much did you make a conscious adult choice that there was a tradition you wanted to extend and advance? I think in the beginning, it was an everyday facet of my life. So there wasn't any distinction whether or not I was going to be a weaver. It was commonplace for me to experience it in my day-to-day life with my mother as a weaver. My you know older siblings were weavers. And you know, growing up in the reservation, I was very much connected to 
extended relatives. So whenever I would go visit my family, whether it be my cousins or my aunties and grandmothers, weaving was always in the home there as well. So um, growing up, it was just an everyday part of life. So it wasn't until, you know, I was going further in school, having more experiences off of the reservation that I was really formulating the idea if, you know, this was going to be something that I wanted to do exclusively. So how did you make that decision that not only did you want to be a weaver and a professional day-to-day artist, but that you wanted to build on, extend and expand traditions? When I was younger, I definitely was already kind of put into the ring of experiencing life as a professional artist. Again, you know, my mother was a weaver and she was doing art exhibitions, whether it be in galleries, museums. And as a child, I was also, you know, doing art exhibitions with my siblings where we were entering juried art competitions through different museums in the northern Arizona area. And then, you know, throughout the state and the southwest moving into New Mexico. So it was always a business sense that was kind of instilled within us because we always sold our textiles. So that business aspect was, again, integrated into the expectations that we had with every textile that we created. So, you know, as a young child, I was already, you know, calling myself an artist. I was already had that label within me. And so I never really, again, had a distinction of, you know, when that actually started because it was always just second nature for that to be a way that we identified ourselves as being artists. And then later when I was going to the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, that's when I really wanted to make those decisions of whether art was going to be my full-time endeavor, you know, being a full-time artist and trying to one create full-time, but also have it, you know, support my lifestyle. And then B was you know, did I really want to go that avenue where it was going to be creatively taxing all of the time? So when I was doing my undergrad, I did make the decision to take on museum studies as, you know, my my primary focus. So it afforded me the ability to be in the art scene, but not necessarily have to be creatively taxed and creating and producing art in order to pretty much survive. And I could still be around artwork and textiles and be in, you know, the museum atmosphere, which, you know, I thrived on again as a child. And it really, really opened my eyes up to the way that I looked at my own artwork and the way that I was critiquing my own work. And, you know, just being in that realm, it afforded me the, I guess not afforded me, I guess it pretty much allowed me to, again, be in a place where I was still doing art secondary, but also having a nine to five job, which I also loved. So there was still that balance in the two. You have often been described as weaving within a Germantown revival tradition. So let me quickly describe what that means. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, European-American traders introduced yarn that had been made in Germantown, PA, which I think is outside Philadelphia, pretty sure that's outside Philadelphia, to Navajo weavers, who then used it to make not not garments, but instead textiles that European-Americans especially would mount on walls or place on floors. What about Germantown revival materials and practices and perhaps histories interested you, interest you? 
So when I started doing Germantown, it was going to be, you know, the late 1990s. And during that time, there weren't very many younger weavers. So I started weaving when I was five years old and, you know, grew up with it again as commonplace. But there weren't a lot of other children my age who had that same experience. So there was a great disconnect between, you know, growing up within the boarding school system, which I went to, and then also living at the southwest corner of the reservation, we were considered like border town. Yeah. So around that time, there wasn't a big interest within, you know, a lot of children my age. It was always seen as, you know, old people's work. It was what your grandmothers did or your aunties wove. And it was a lot of, there was a lot of conversation about how our traditions were dying along with, you know, our language because these things weren't being taught. And they were also very few people who actually had the knowledge to teach it. So when I kind of felt there was that dire energy in the atmosphere about, you know, what if we lose this tradition? I was really drawn to the Germantown style because it came about in, a, again, a dire time in our history when, you know, the Navajo, we were imprisoned at Bosque Redondo in New Mexico after our forced removal from our traditional homelands. And during that time is when the original Germantown style came about with, you know, the the ration blankets that were provided to the Navajo because the U.S. Army had pretty much wiped out all of our sheep flocks in, a, in an attempt to wipe out the people because that was our food source. It was the source of the raw materials in which we, you know, made our clothes and blankets to keep warm in the elements. So in order for the government to pretty much kill us off, they targeted our sheep flocks first. So, you know, coming from a time where there's this, again, that initial energy of, you know, what if we lose not only our lives, but also our traditions and our weaving culture. And it just kind of struck me as a great parallel with what we were dealing with in the 90s of losing our traditions and losing our culture. So that's why I was really drawn to the Germantown in a sense of, you know, what it represented in that way. The secondary course is going to be the bright color palette and the use of the Germantown yarns, which, you know, came from the, the aniline dyed threads, which are really bright, vibrant, and just really eye-catching. And so with the type of work that I wanted to create, it was very loud. You know, when I was growing up, I was interested in video games and I was interested in music that was loud and in your face. I was interested in skateboarding. So I was naturally gravitating towards the color palette of the Germantown. That reminds me that a few months ago, you posted a picture of, I forget if it was your mother or your grandmother on Instagram, and you were really excited that either your mother or your grandmother mother had adopted a new, brighter, almost neon color palette mm -hmm. for her weavings. And it was, it was, you know, very much this, you know, offspring excited that parent gets it moment. That I yeah, it's actually, you know, it's been like this onward conversation that I continue to have with, you know, my mother and my grandmother and my aunts. We're always, you know, exchanging ideas and feeding off of each other and bouncing ideas off of one another. So that was my kind of contribution to her current work is I gifted her a wide range of colors from my own, you know, Germantown palette. And she took them and just kind of ran with it. So she's been creating these textiles that are Germantown influenced with the palette. And she's weaving, you know, her traditional patterning with this new material. And it's pretty much just like reinvigorated her. She just turned 90 years old. So 
she's still at her loom and you wow. know even her as a master weaver she's still continuing to explore and and find new ways of expressing herself and in exciting different ways are you now using yarn from germantown so historically the germantown would have been like a four ply and like very very fine very densely woven today we, we work with more of a three ply and it's not as tightly spun but it still you know provides the same quality and it's still from the northeastern region where the original germantown was produced well let's move into talking about your work the actual objects i'm interested in how you build and fuse abstract patternings and symbols and compositions into into space and to get at that, I thought we might start by talking about walking off No Water Mesa, which is an 11 foot, almost, wait, almost 11, 10 and a half, almost 11 foot. Sorry, I'm very bad at math. Um, <laughs> foot high work that you made in 2021. It's now in the collection of Crystal Bridges. The title refers to, I guess, a couple things, right? Place and hydrological condition and movement. Does the imagery within the work, and we'll have an image on manpodcast.com, contain references to to all of those things and more? Um, yes, it does. I mean, the, the title is based off of the region where my family's from. My parents actually currently live there, which is No Water Mesa, Arizona. It's on the southwestern corner of the Navajo Reservation near Grand Falls and Loop, Arizona, where which is the community that I grew up in. And then also like near there is also, you know, Cameron Trading Post, which would have been like one of the larger trading hubs in in the area. So walking off No Water Mesa, I really wanted to kind of encapsulate the dreaminess that I feel whenever I go back to the area within like the middle structure of the textile, the design work, you have those three panels where you're actually, you know, peering into the three windows and you're looking at those sand dunes in the distance with like the checkerboard sky. So those are some of the things that I wanted to reference in terms of the landscape of No Water Mesa, which is, you know, the sand dunes. Growing up as a child, that's where I played with my siblings and we spent our summers and weekends there just experiencing the landscape and creating those bonds with, you know, our relatives. So those are some of the things that I like to reference in the work that I create. And for me to be able to not only just do like a traditional pattern that is, you know, symmetrical in all four quadrants, I'm really able to paint like a more, a more realistic landscape of the imagery that I feel. And that's what I really like to um, expand upon in the current work is actually taking, you know, feeling and imagery that I have in my head, and the different themes to start off with, and then expanding on them once I actually sit down at the loom and start to map out the different patterns and designs. And that way of thinking is actually a lot different than how I was weaving when I was first learning. It was the opposite. I was actually sitting at the loom, mapping out the geometrics and the, you know, the number counting, and then figuring out where the pattern was going to head from there. So now that I start with, you know, uh, pretty much a thesis, I can expand and really dial in the composition, one beforehand with a lot of, you know, visual imagery that I base the work off of, and then sitting down at the loom and doing a lot of the mathematical calculations. So with the work, nothing is drawn out. I actually just work off of visual reference in my head. That yeah. almost sounds like an improvisational 
practice rather than a staged practice. It very much is. I mean, because weaving is very much set in stone once you weave the threads where they're placed is their final resting stage. So I have to really be calculated in the way that I create the patterns and the, the designs because it's very technically advanced in terms of every every stitch, every, I shouldn't say stitch, but every way that the weft is laid in has to be the in the exact place. Otherwise, the entire design gets thrown off. So I have to be very calculated in that way with the math. But in terms of shifting my pattern and design in the overall aesthetic look of the piece, I can change because, you know, the, the weaving allows me to be fluid in that way. Walking off No Water Mesa includes that kind of central three-part tripartite window you described. And above it, above the window and below the window is a range of spectacular patterning. Above the window are, are three symbols that occur in a lot of your work over over a decade now at least what are 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 some of those symbols and from what do they descend the symbols are reference to traditional design work you'll see a lot of them in the traditional patterns whether it's like a regional style or if it's referencing like a specific cultural significant symbol i do a lot of this layering of imagery and kind of stencil work to make the images feel like they're either floating or they have filters on them and creating that idea of foreground, middle ground and background. And so the idea of bringing in, you know, the no water Mesa theme within those, the upper and lower sections of the textile, I wanted to incorporate those symbols that I would like see in the artwork that I would see on my grandmother's walls or the things that she was weaving. So I do reference her textiles in the work that I create today. And that would be my dad's, my dad's mother. Her name is Doris Cody. And so I have weaving traditions that go through both my mother's lineage and my father's lineage. An example of the three-dimensionality to which you, or the perception of three-dimensionality to which you just referred I think might be within one of the works in Made in LA, a work called Scaling the Caverns. What in that work reads as three-dimensional and why do you like having the illusion of depth within the work? I like having the depth in the work because I want to include the viewer into the experience. I want the viewer to you know, come along for the ride I want the viewer to be kind of like engulfed in the piece, but also look at the textile and see where the movement is bringing them into it. And then also the places to rest. And also I want the viewer to use their own imagination to think of what's happening beyond the plane of the actual woven textile. So again, there's a lot of interaction that's happening, whether I'm there or not, but the piece is doing that for me. So within Scaling the Caverns, I really wanted the viewer to kind of float in and out of those kind of that cylinder in the middle where you have the fiery serrated diamonds with the movement of the overlaid white spider woman crosses. So that's an, that in itself is one experience. And then as you move through the rest of the the left and the right of the textile, it is mirror image, but you have the the feel that that's one 
enclosed space in its own its own cavern. And so as you're moving within the pockets of the geometric, like wallpaper-esque feel of the background, you're still able to kind of peer up and down and see the little pockets of color that you can either rest in or you can move back into the midsection. So you're constantly, you know, in a state of movement. And I like that the viewer can, you know, decide, you know, however their eye is weighted, what is going to be more appealing to them. Is it going to be the, you know, the sharp edges of the diamonds, or is it going to be the fiery color palette, or is it going to be the soft and restful places of the larger expanses of negative space? Sometimes with your work, maybe this is a good example. I haven't seen it in person yet. It feels like we could be looking straight ahead into receding space, or we could be looking up at a ceiling. And the difference in spatiality within those two experiences makes everything kind of swirl and vibrate at once and both excites and confuses the eye. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I I hear that term a lot is the vibration. You know, you feel the vibration, which, you know, again, radiates and kind of wakes up a lot of different senses within the viewer's eye. And I really like the play on using, you know, a really bright, either warm, fiery color palette in contrast to like the cool colors of like the greens and blues. So, you know, really utilizing color theory and how the person interacts with those types of fields of color. And then also, again, using like the repetitive nature of the geometric pattern, and especially in scaling the caverns where you have the geometric background, that's the blue and the green, but it's creating almost like a wallpaper-esque feel to it. So even though it's giving an almost flat feel, all of the weaving patterns that went into it was very complex. So, you know, as a finished product, it's looking like one entity, whereas when I'm weaving it, it's, you know, I have about probably 30 different strings that are making that one design come come to life. There are a couple of things in scaling the caverns that are in a lot of your work. One of them you mentioned a moment ago, spider women's crosses. What are they and why do you use them so much? Well, spider women crosses, the name references spider women. So within the Navajo culture, spider women, you know, as part of our creation stories, but also other references in terms of weaving where spider women brought the knowledge of weaving to the Navajo people. And then there is also a spider man who brought the tools and the weaving loom and the materials. So that's where the name spider woman comes from. The spider woman cross is was just kind of like a coin term that came about for these really bold crosses that, again, the reference for the cross is the four arms that come from the middle. So four within Navajo is like a sacred number. It's said that we are in the third world and the next one is the fourth world. So a lot of my work kind of references, you know, that fourth world and, you know, what is that experience going to be like? And I'm kind of like formulating my own ideas and thinking of like the the types of imagery that fourth world would release to us. Another composition or form that's in Scaling the Caverns and is in a lot of your work, is a a particular colorful diamond form, often with a palette that's pretty consistent. Think oranges bordered by dark teal with white and dark teal in the center overlaid with those crosses. What is that diamond form and why 
does it, why is it as persistent in the work as it is? The diamond form is the serrated diamond. And I use it a lot in terms of creating elements of, again, that vibration that it really lends itself to, to adding a lot of movement within the textile, because even though it is like a basic weaving design, so the colors that the weaver can utilize changes the feel of the serrated diamond and also it just changes the effect that the diamond produces and the way that it's used within the textile it's a very versatile technique to weave and so that's why I'm drawn to it and actually I started learning how to do the serrated diamond as like the foundational design that my mom taught me when I was five years old so I was really drawn to the serrated diamonds and another reason why I use it is it really mimics the landscape of where I'm from. So No Water Mesa is on the western edge of the Painted Desert. So if, you, if you're familiar with the Painted Desert, it, it's pretty much like mesa and rock formations that are layered with different lines of sediment. And it looks like, you know, a painting. And that's what the serrated diamond does for me. It creates that landscape element that I, you know, I grew up seeing and visiting every summer and weekend. And it's, you know, a very comforting type of pattern that I like to incorporate because it does have like a deep meaning for myself. Another reason why I'm drawn to the serrated diamond is because of the Germantown. When Germantown came about, a lot of the weavers were using the Germantown to mimic saltillo serapes that were coming from, from the South in Mexico. So instead of, so the Saltillo Serape influence on the Navajo German town is we were still weaving them to be used as ponchos as well. So, you know, cutting a slit in the middle of the textile to create, you know, that hole to pull over your head. And those, the, the patterning that was used for those Serape style German town blankets were serrated diamonds. And a lot of that you'll see like influence now from like Chumayo blankets, the actual saltillo serapes, you would see they would have the fringe on the bottom and on the top of the textile. But that fringe was actually part of the inner structure warping system of the weaving. So once the weaving was completed, the weaver would then, you know, cut the, the textile off of the loom, the floor loom. Whereas with the Navajo, we weave what is called a continuous warp. So the warp starts on the left side. It's wound in a figure eight all the way to the right. So the size is predetermined before we start weaving. So in order to mimic that fringe, we would cut lengths of wool and then tie them on by hand. So it was like a mock fringe. So you'll see that on the textiles at the Made in LA exhibition, they have that mock fringe on the bottom edge of each tapestry. I wanted to ask about another, I don't know about common move within your work, but another kind of way of layering imagery that you started constructing in the mid-2010s. So I'm thinking of a work like Dust from 2015, which includes the sort of diamond-shaped pattern we were just talking about in over-the-top vibrating colors. And on top of that pattern are black lines that almost feel like, in this, in this work, in Dust, redactions. And there are kind of black lines and patterns that recur in the work kind of through the 2010s. In dust in particular, what what are those black lines or sections and why do you use them that way? I was using a lot of just packed in design work, like very, very highly, heavily detailed textiles for every facet of, 
you know, open space was filled with some sort of design. And I actually learned that type of technique from my mother who, you know, her weaving was in the vein of burnt water and two gray hills where, you know, again, every, every part of the textile is filled with the design. So in order for me to kind of further myself and really learn more about my own stylistic endeavors, I wanted to embrace the idea of negative space. So mm-hmm. one way to do that was to do these textiles that incorporated letters. So, you know, in this in this particular textile, the, there's the D, there's the U, there's the S and the T, where the negative space is actually forming those letters. And then the design is actually the letter work where it's almost like I've taken a stencil and cut out those areas in order to form the letters. And in this this particular piece, the S is a Navajo whirling log. And within the whirling log, the foundation of it is that spider woman cross. Each arm of the cross has, you know, again, an additional appendage where it's creating that whirling log. And it, you can see that it spins clockwise, which we say is like the natural direction of the world. And so each, each arm, again, referencing the sacred number four, the four sacred mountains, which our traditional homelands are within. And then also the four references, the four sacred directions, and then also the four colors. And in works around that time, you will build not only single words into a work, but a whole bunch of words. Another place in which you use kind of black layering is a work called Dopamine Regression, Mm -hmm. which is practically somewhere between psychedelic and manic in its intensities. And what's really interesting about the way the black spaces function in this work is they hold the whole thing together. Nothing spirals away out of control or collides too much. It's all just held in place. So how are you how how in in dopamine regression are you using using the color black? Well, the color black I, I say it's like a calculated negative space. So it's putting everything that you would consider to be normal within a Navajo textile and flipping it. So all of the design work is negative space and all of the background is actually the heavily detailed work. So again, I'm toying with this idea of like wallpapers where the really detail-oriented aspects of the textile are being put together to create one, you know, one sheet. And it's playing with the viewer's eye because you're pretty much forcing the viewer to acknowledge that negative space as the main focal point of the entire piece, but still having those backgrounds have a lot of, you know, movement and structure of their own. So you're, again, I'm trying to draw the viewer into those negative spaces and experience, you know, the patterns and the colors that are happening. And again, in that main area of the the middle of the textile, you have the stenciled black, you know, the black spider woman crosses. Just above that, you have that rainbow color of the movement of the spider woman crosses coming in from one side and making their way across the plane to the left. You know, and then up at the top, you have that big, bold red spider woman cross. So every facet of the textile is utilizing that recurring theme of the cross, but also it's woven in a different way within each stage of the weaving. It all almost appears to be moving. 
Before we wrap up, I want to ask about Dopamine Dream, another work in Made in LA. It contains within it a lot of the components we've been discussing, but there is something really different in the middle panel, if you will. A kind of uh, aqua teal rectangle with squares within squares within squares. Is that a new move for you? And what are you doing there? This is a new move for me. I mean, again, it's an elaboration on embracing negative space, but creating a new element for these patterns to exist. And I really wanted to create a space that was very controlled. A lot of times when I create these backgrounds that are almost wallpaper-esque or these different elements of like different worlds, there's always a lot of movement and you're constantly, you know, being thrusted from left to right or either, you know, in and out of the textile. So I really wanted the viewer to be able to kind of have a space where you do have these interesting geometric forms living, like they're structured in a way where they're placed with intention and the colors are intentional and they're the way that they're living within that space is very bold. And I wanted to take, again, going back to that foundational element of the, you know, the humble square, a lot of the elements that I weave are, are pretty much pixelations. And it then it goes back to that digital element of growing up in the eighties with like Atari the first Nintendo that came out and then also, you know, growing up learning about the internet and then, you know, being in this digital age where everything is technologically advanced and you have to be up to date in order to understand the world around you. So I really wanted, you know, this work to come full circle with the digital weaving and kind of acknowledge that foundation of the, you know, the humble pixel and have it really be the focal point of a lot of these textiles, but also, bring in, again, the bold symmetry of the traditional weavings where each quadrant is a mirror image, but still having fun with the color palette and being able to bring in that one-of-a-kind brightness that the Germantown affords. It's the only part of that entire work that quiets down. Um... (laughs) It quiets down, and it definitely allows the viewer to hold its place. And I think that... utilizing, you know, the coolness and the calmness of the green and really being able to play on the types of colors that I used for each stacked square. It was just a fun textile to weave. And I think that's what I really wanted to, again, embrace was, you know, I can weave really complex and like really out of the box weavings, but I really do love the simplicity of weaving just basic bowl patterns. I mean, it can be fun in itself and it's very grounding because coming back, you know, and pretty much like resetting myself with the style like this, it really helps me acknowledge what an appreciation I have for this type of work and to be able to kind of saddle that fence and go back and forth between the heavily crazy, you know, ideas and then also being able to have a lot of, solace in the very calm, calming nature of the negative space. It's, you know, it's fun. And I like weaving to be fun. You know, it's my full time job. But when I'm at the loom, I don't really feel again, like I'm being creatively taxed, because a lot of this work comes so naturally. And it's, you know, I'm very, you know, blessed to be able to say that. Melissa Cody, thanks very much. Thank you. 
Now on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Rebecca Morris, 2001 to 2022. Experience the large-scale abstract paintings of Rebecca Morris in this 21-year survey of her work. Known for her inventive approach to composition, color, and gesture, Morris's work offers a glimpse into new ways forward for the constantly evolving and expanded field of painting. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. Support comes from Getty, presenting the groundbreaking new exhibition, Alfredo Bolton, Looking at Venezuela, 1928 to 1978, on view through January 7, 2024. Considered one of the most important champions of modern art and art history in Venezuela, Alfredo Bolton is shockingly under-recognized outside his home country until now. The exhibition explores Bolton from several angles, including his photographs of Venezuelan people and landscapes, connections to artists of his time, and his involvement in the development of art history in Venezuela. Experience the show in both English and Spanish, and enjoy additional programming, including a film screening and live jazz performance. Learn more and make free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Chrissa in New York through March 10, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures, as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Chrissa was a leader within avant-garde circles during her years in New York and was one of the first to incorporate neon into her practice. Co-organized by the Manil Collection and Dia Art Foundation, Chrissa in New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Welcome back. Next up, Roxana Piruzman. She's an Iranian multidisciplinary artist whose work references and uses the human body to address diaspora and memory. She's exhibited across Southern California at venues such as the California Institute of the Arts' Red Cat. Roxana Piruzman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Larry. Thanks for having me. Your biography is at the root of a heck of a lot of your work. So I thought that instead of my presenting your biography and possibly leaving out something that's important to you, that I would start by asking you what within your biography is most relevant to the work you make. So I was born and raised most of my life in uh, Yazd, Iran. That's central city uh, in Iran. It's known for its Adobe architecture. I grew up in a Zoroastrian family. Yeah. And you still have family there, even though you're now in California? Yes, yes. My aunts and uncles, most of them are there. But here, my parents moved here five years ago. I moved here 10 years ago. I mean, 12 years ago. And then my parents moved here five years ago. I'm living with them. One of the real constants in your work over quite a number of years now is your use of clay, a material that you use in wall-mounted works that recall and reference and kind of live within the sphere of influence of painting in sculptures that are mounted in the gallery. You use clay in a fountain that is at the hammer, which we're going to talk about more in a bit. And you even use clay in making and exhibiting Franz Vest recalling objects that encourage audience participation and, I don't know, sort of handling of, in a way. 
so given that you've found, you know, a, a, a 43 ways of using clay, all of them different but related, why clay? And I guess it started actually with that work speechless. When I got to, I was like, yes, I like this material. It started with like realizing the, the functionality of it. Like that's like, I can make anything and then you can, it's food safe. And like those two things together really intrigued me and like its possibilities. And that was basically my undergrad thesis show. And like the last year as an undergrad, I, I got to know Clay. And then before that, I was doing more performative, I mean, other medium, whatever really worked with the idea. So yeah, that started kind of there and then slowly working more with clay and like just realizing how, I mean, in commercial clay, like how vast like your options are and also then relating it to like, okay, each region also like it comes actually from earth, even though it's commercial, but like, it's like all the minerals are, and then the differences, the colors and like, like it's just the potentials of clay. I still, I think still there are so much that I'm going to explore more. And like, yeah, like with the 2D works also is like realizing like, okay, with clay, it's two dimensional, but I can't enter the, but three dimensional, like I can a little, in a subtle way, I can, do three-dimensional parts to it, like cutting holes or, and then also like I can use it as pigments by mixing like a white clay and a black clay and having all these gradients of color in between. And then this is my palette and I can paint. And then this whole thing can go into a kiln and be fired and becomes like this one object. Are you interested in... Any potential relationships between clay and specific place or specific land or specific histories therein? I think I'm beginning, I was not, and I'm still kind of using commercial clay, but I can see this too, especially, I mean, I grew up in a town that was like known also for its ceramic, but I never really got to work with ceramic when I was in Iran. And now I'm like thinking, like, yeah, this this is I I I'm getting back to this because I from the city of clay and like of Adobe, and I can see I I'm I think one day I'll I'll get back to like the clay the form of clay that is like straight from the earth and like where it is from and like that I can see that would come in future into my work. For the present, is there something about clay, its materiality, the way? requires kind of multi-stages of use, just whatever the thing is. Is there something about clay that you think of as allowing you to access or foreground both diaspora and family history? For sure, yeah. I mean, thinking about different stages of clay, like when it's not fired and like I'm playing around with water, clay, and in a way time that eroding and like over time, like something, the water is like flowing through something and like it's changing it's formally but still the clay is there and that's i have been using that quality of clay in um a few of the works like the past seeps through the present that is an installation piece that i cast at my grandmother's body that is hovering above a couch and that's clay and I fired that uh, to a low temperature and and then uh, on the couch I casted my mom's body and 
that's casted in not fired clay. And so the top body, my grandma's body is holding water and then and has like very tiny pores in them that slowly the water seeps through and drops into my mom's body and like over the I mean the past time that I had that installation was over like a month and a half. And so slowly it would create this holes and erosion and it would like seeps into the couch also and like changes visually the form of the body. We're going to talk about water a little bit more in a minute. But seeing as you referenced the past seeps through the present, it raises an opportunity to talk about the way so much of your work addresses the domestic, domestic relationships, domestic space. What are the attractions to and maybe the challenges within addressing the domestic when your homeland and much of your family is 8,000 miles away? Well, I think the ideas to me come from like the firsthand experience, like it's the everyday life and like what what I experience and like what's, I don't know, it's, it's the situation and like whatever it is, it's the spark of the idea. And so usually it starts from home and like what I'm going through and like a being far from like calling here home or calling back home in Iran is like, it's that relationship exists and like I'm living through that. So the idea comes through that, but I'm hoping that when, when it comes to actually making the work, I am hoping that it would have like other connotations or other metaphors into it, other layers added to it that it goes beyond the, like the, I don't know if a couch is a couch, like becoming something else or a metaphor for something or like a uh, vessel. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, but that's true that like the ideas are from home starting and then it's, it's the context of the work. And so we'll talk about water in your work in a minute, but as you brought up the past sleeps through the present. So that's a work which features a couch, which has lots of art historical associations, especially in the context of speechless. I think of Franz West. There's a work like Tapping, Rocking, Remembering, which includes things like fishing thread, family portraits, a cast of your grandmother's finger, but perhaps most prominently, your father's rocking chair. And of course, when we see a, a chair in art, I mean, how do you separate that from the history of portraiture? Lots of artists, you know, Matisse and de Kooning come to mind, have had great fun winking at and laughing at the way artists have used chairs across art's long history. Are you interested in art historical associations such as those, or are those kind of beyond your targets? Yeah, and not really. And maybe like couch and all those objects are very everyday objects that like every artist like have thought about that or have had in their like it's like sit on it and like it's it's a prominent object as you leave. So maybe maybe that's why. But yeah, no. Definitely not something that I um I think about it when I'm making the work. It's, it's kind kind of comes comes along as as and I'm always like fascinated by like all the other reads that are made after the work is done. It's almost like you're treating your family's objects as a history museum might treat objects in its collection. You know, extending and telling a story around history, only you're an artist and you're doing it in an art museum instead of a history museum. Yeah. 
how, how did how did your dad feel about giving up his chair? <laughs> My family has been supportive of what I do. So they, they, they were, yeah, I mean, that's diplomatic. That's very diplomatic. Did, does he want the chair back? Actually, it's back to its function now. So. <laughs> One of your moves, as it were, for a long time now has been to use water within sculptures to activate sculptures as a erosive, is that a word? Erosive agent within your sculptures and installations. And I have a couple things I'd like to ask about that. But maybe first off, there aren't a whole lot of sculptors who use water and lots of things. So how did you come to start using water? Yeah, as you said, like, I think it's quality, like similar to clay, it's like it has that potential that it's with you put it next to like clay, then those two things together are our friend, but not friend also is like the water eroding the when when a clay is like to its bone dry stage, a water is kind of like it's disruptive and like it's uh it erodes the clay and like so I'm interested like that's that's I feel like that combination can create a meaning or something that I can use. So like water at least in like that work, like the past seeps through the present have two qualities actually like when it's dripping from that body into my uh, from like my grandma's body into my mom's body it's like erosion but also it's like water has that like when in a vessel like my grandma becomes a vessel of holding the water and like that becomes like it's yeah it, it creates two I don't know what is the word for it, but but transference, like a connection, but not a physical connection. Yeah, it's like create that the flow of water also is like it's it can go from exactly transferring from like one body to the other. It's literally this fluidity is is the thing that I'm interested in and can move around. I, I guess like water brings movement to the work for me and i'm i'm interested like i guess like in movement in the work my work always like i but i'm it's not static ever like it's whether i'm performing in the work or i'm like if it's the object the object in a way it's performing with materials such as water or when you use water in a work such as the past seeps through the present so over the run of a six-week gallery show you know it it's easy to clean up afterward. But how do you think of water impacting a work that may enter, say, an institutional collection and and the impacts it will have over decades and years? Is that something you want, don't want, are concerned about, not concerned about? I think it ties into what the work is and it's uh, going to erode or fall apart. And like, it's not much lasting. Maybe it's, it won't specifically that work if that work was installed in a place for a year, I don't think it would really change. And so I think that's that's a part of it. And there was a work in a solo show you had up at, I think, Murmur Gallery in LA last year as part of the past seeps through the present that features an image on a ceramic panel installed in kind of a plexiglass plastic rocker with water on top of it. So the point being, as the sculptural object rocked back and forth, the water passed over the image in one direction, reached one end of the sculpture, and then the rocker rocked back in the other direction, and the water passed back over the sculpture. And it's a really interesting way of water acting as like a 
you know, a fluid acting as a solid material almost. What do you want or did you want water to do in that installation? And did it work how you thought it would? Actually, that work was like really, it was solving physics for me. I mean, the idea came from I wanted to recreate like like a shore, a seashore, or like like bringing, I was thinking of what if a seashore is in a desert and like bringing the clay and the seashore to things that are like not liking each other and definitely would erode very quickly like next to each other in this contained vessel that people could activate it. And so I was hoping that this, so the water is also diluted with clay, so it's not transparent. And I wanted to create this kind of like illusion or the idea that the image is slowly, it's eroding over time. And also the clay water is obscuring the image. And that's like a family image and like I was thinking about like how memories and the images slowly over time it's it dis- disintegrate and like so yeah I think it did what I wanted it to do as an object. There's another work at the Hammer which features a clay sculpture of several stacked bodies bending leaning forward as if in prayer that is also activated by water. First, are those bodies people in particular and why have you stacked them the way you've stacked them? Yeah, definitely. I uh, like those bodies. I I mean, those are cast of what person's body, but like I was hoping it would give the feeling of many bodies or, and yeah, I mean, in that work, I was thinking about this gesture as a praying gesture and like, contradicting that by putting the bodies on top of each other that how like each body is like in a way putting pressure and like weight on the next body and like I mean the water flowing through is like this unifying thing that is flowing through them but also is I mean the work is called until it's it all is dissolved and Also, I was thinking about like a a form of resilience of these bodies, like they are stacked, there is weight, they're they're all doing one gesture, but I don't know, there is also that like feeling of, I think it came from like those paintings that I was doing. And like also in those paintings, I'm thinking about care and violence at the same time. And in this sculpture, also I'm thinking about the care and violence both at the same time. And uh, yeah. The water being a kind of erosive violence? Not th- that being the violence, but like the weight of the stack body on top of each other. And the water is a, f- a-, a way of like over time, like it's a, it's gives it a time and like over time, this is going to all dissolve or in a way resolved. Like the- those two words were for me, like in Farsi, like dissolved and resolved can be one word. And so if it's translated to that, it, it creates that duality too. So love a little etymology. Do you think of that work as a fountain? I did not think about it as a, like a fountain. No, I think it's, I mean, I don't know what, what, what do you mean by fountain, like fountain in a way that is a garden fountain or just kind of within the, you know, many centuries long tradition of sculptures being activated in one way or another by water, you know, think Bernini in Rome or think, you know, Versailles or something. But when we, when we, when, when water moves through or over or from a sculpture, 
I, you know, granted, I'm a giant art history nerd, but I inevitably think of the relationship to especially civic public fountains. I honestly, I didn't consider it to be in that realm of fountain. Again, like the water is functioning for me as this moving, creates movement in the image and uh, its quality of eroding. That's that's what I'm aiming for. But definitely, especially this work being in an outside space, it's it puts it in that trajectory of history. So I'm open to it, to it but it was not my intention. Kind of like Franz asked, I think other people will, will get there on that one too. I wanted to talk a little bit about you and performance. There is a work in the Hammer show that features you sometimes, I think one day a week. This is going to sound like I'm making it up, but I'm not. In an installation tucked into a wall. Yeah. <laughs> and so I want to ask about a couple elements of that. First, just performance in general. What attracted you to performance and why 14 years after your first performance are you still doing them? Yeah, I guess I got to know performance when I was just in high school and like I uh, in art school, I, but I was living in Yas. And then that really like being able to do something with your like, I think it's the most immediate thing for me, like creating an immediate image is having actually your body in an image. Like I, I like also performing, especially recently, I'm thinking about like a gesture, a simple gesture that not really rehearsed in any way, but like I have this image in my head as if it's a painting or as if it's a, a still image. But it's like when the body is there, I think it makes it more relatable, maybe in a way. Yeah, I think performance has in a way always been in in my work since I got to know it and. Um, in Iran, for me, definitely starting it, it was, you know, having your body in the work was not, especially as a woman's body, that becomes like, I mean, at the time, or even now, like, have that power that I, I don't think an image of the woman would have a similar power than if, if you put your body in a foreground. So, yeah, that started, that was my first, like, at least when I was in doing it in Iran and now in different ways, I guess, still have like imagine when I'm thinking about ideas or like a work, I always think of my body in that situation. In the performance at the hammer where, where you are literally in a wall, the way the viewer sees the performance is through a window, you know, think kind of the classic window with you know, white painted wooden supports breaking it up. Point being, the viewer sees the performance through something, and that something is a window. Why a window? It's again the domestic elements that I brought in. So the idea is like, I mean, I don't know how much it comes through, but one window is a represent, like it's very similar to the window of our home. And then the other window is a window that I searched. I mean, at the beginning, I was thinking about replicating like a window from my grandma's house and for time logistic and like I had to find a window that is more similar so yeah so supposedly one window is from here and the other window is a window from Iran and I'm creating this domestic space or a, a, or in a way a headspace in between these two windows that um, the viewer can 
have and then it would affect the whole room so one window is in one gallery space and the other is in the other gallery space and in a way it would turn those two spaces to it could be two for me it was two different countries but it could be two different things and like so and that wall becomes a mediator or like a between space for the two and if a viewer is standing on one side they are seeing me with the background of the other space and vice versa so a compression of that 8000 miles into an artist built domestic space of a couple feet wide i mean a lot of the things we've talked about are kind of coming together in this one work one of the things that i thought about was the art historical relationship between the window alberti's window and perspective and understanding where you're kind of using the window as a way to remind us of our potential differences or similarities in perspecting and understanding of circumstance it seems you know kind of diasporically related in that way in that work there is a fan on the floor i think that blows stuff around the space what is being blown around and what is your response at when you're when you're in performance mode to what is blown around you yeah those are at the moment at least they are family photos like that are printed on regular paper and they are being blown around and i'm basically standing there and as this paper circulates around they come to my hand and then again they go around so and over time the photos are i mean already within the 10 days i guess that's the show has been opened the photos already are disintegrating and like they are tearing apart and so i'm imagining by the end of the three months the the photos turn into dust or like something like that is less recognizable of what it is so is the combination of the fan and the photos and your reaching for the photos a different version of referencing the difficulty of holding on to place and connection and cultural knowledge and family memory, kind of doing the same work the water does in other works. Exactly. Yeah. And that movement is creating the erosion. Yeah. And uh, yeah, exactly. It's another form of like memory disintegrating and like maybe replacing. I'm, I see that work still in progress. It's like sometimes the work I, um, make it's like the the process of making it it just you have to make it till then realize what the work is doing and then what it needs so i'm actually at that stage and i feel like the the work can like what objects are floating now it's like something that i'm thinking and might might change over just three months but i'm not sure yet <laughs> i have to i was thinking about like in the same way news or like any anything that is happening at the moment at the current time like within a month like the 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 memory is like forgets it and like replace it with another thing and like also this idea kind of beside like i mean family photos stands for hopefully a, a bigger idea of like how i don't know with things happening in iran uh, for the past one year and also before that and all of that it just like it feels like we forget things happens and it's replaced with another news and another news and like i i, I don't know it feels like a storm also like i mean that idea came from like creating a stormy space that things are floating and it's not visible like a dust storm 
and then because let's just the cold thing we couldn't make the dust storm in the wall so it becomes like objects floating around it all reminds me that it's one thing to install a sculpture or wall mounted something in your studio and return to it over a week or two and see how it holds up in your mind's eye but when you're doing a performance that is effectively durational i mean it's not you know 23 hours a day but it's you know one day a week an hour or two over the course of three or four months you don't know what's going to happen to the curtains or the material or the drywall or the photos and and that it's necessary or helpful to have a conceptual framework that allows for adaptation exactly do you know what you might sub in um the moment Well, see, see previous comment on conceptual underpinning being firmly in place. So okay. something will end will, will certainly fit. Uh, Roxana Piruzman, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Tyler, for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.